Welcome to 10 Minute Tech Calm. This is Ryan Weber from the University of Alabama in Huntsville. Most of my listeners have the challenge of explaining technology so that people can understand it and find it meaningful. Today's guest takes on that challenge from a slightly different direction. So I'm Sydney Fusel. I'm a reporter with The Atlantic. I've been here for about six months. Before that, I was at Gizmodo. I write about surveillance, data, and race. I'm an Arkansas native, hence the accent. As a technology reporter for The Atlantic, Mr. Fusel writes about how recent technology trends and cutting-edge developments affect society and culture, especially marginalized groups and people of color. Among his recent stories from The Atlantic are one about how San Francisco wants to ban government face recognition software, how students at Parkland are being surveilled, how Walgreens is employing facial detection to figure out who buys groceries, the ways that automation is remaking service work, and the future of data collection and data mining. I brought him in today to talk about his writing process, how he describes technology clearly, and also how he interprets technology, and how he brings in perspectives that are often left out by the dominant and promotional narratives offered by big tech companies. Welcome to the podcast, Sydney. I really appreciate you joining us. And what I wanted to talk about was your work as a technology reporter and writer. And as I understand it, what you do is you take new technology developments and trends and kind of interpret them for audiences. So to start out, how do you decide kind of what technology trends you want to write about? First off, I think that technology writing is difficult and a lot of it is dry. So you have to really, really be interested in, in the things that you're writing about in order to make it through because there's lots of research that has to be done. And with technology specifically, you want to make sure that you're explaining it correctly. In order to explain something correctly, you have to read it and read it and tell someone about it and read it and read it and tell someone about it. So for me, the first thing I, I say is, is this interesting to me? Does it fall within my key areas? My key areas in technology writing are surveillance, data, data privacy, and race. A couple of stories I've been working on that were really interesting to me, well, let me think. One I did recently was about cashless stores. So a lot of stores around the country are going fully cashless. They only take cars or they'll take something like a Apple Watch payments. And so a few different cities around the country are banning that practice and they're introducing legislation that would make it illegal for stores to do that. And so I was interested in, you know, the technological aspect of how do you remake the store? How does the store changes when you switch from cash to cashless? But I was also interested in the unbanked people. And those are going to be people who don't have access to cards, who don't have traditional economic power. Those are going to be, you know, homeless and disenfranchised people. So the story like that, it actually, I saw a press release about, I think it was sweet green, the salad chain that they're going all cashless. And so I was just like, what if you don't have a debit card? And so for me, it's about looking at something and then being like, well, how does it affect people or who, who can't access it? You know, obviously press releases are written so that people are excited about it. You know, they don't really talk about the people who can't access it. So for me, that story was, well, what if you can't do this? And so most unbanked people um, are also people of color. They're going to be Hispanic. They're going to be African-American. They're going to be immigrants. What started as a story just about a new technology also becomes a story about who can't access technology and then poverty and race and why can't they access it. So for me, in terms of identifying a trend, it has to sort of hit all those layers. There has to be some type of technology to it. There has to be a group of people that are affected or impacted in some way. And then we can talk about why they're affected or impacted in that way and what we can do to, what we can do to change that. Well, and you're hitting on something sort of at the beginning there when you mentioned, you know, technology reporting is often dry and difficult. And that's one of the many things I wanted to get at in this interview is, you know, most of my listeners have a, a similar challenge with a different job, which is to explain technology to people in a way that's interesting and useful. So thinking about that element you were talking about, 
you know, how do you describe technology in a way that's not dry, in a way that's interesting and also accurate? Short answer is I don't. My first draft, I just write everything, every like overwrite, write everything. And then, you know, I have patient, incredible, wonderful editors at the Atlantic and then at my previous job at Gizmodo. And so we just go through it and we say, what's useful? What is slowing people down? We think about the reader as they're moving through the piece. You know, are they reading a great story with a great person? And then they have four paragraphs of jargon. You know what I mean? So it's it's really what's useful for the story I'm trying to tell and then what's not useful. So for example, I just wrote a story about Walgreens. Walgreens is using uh, smart coolers. These are coolers that have cameras that record the age and gender of people who get products from the coolers who open up and, and get a drink. It'll scan your face and say, and make a guess like a younger male picked up a diet Pepsi. This many young men chose Pepsi. This many older women chose Mountain Dew, whatever. And so when I was writing that, I also wrote about face recognition, which is a different technology than face detection. And so my editor went in and was like, okay, keep the description of what the Walgreens cooler does, but take out these two graphs about face recognition, which is a different but similar technology. So really, you want to give people context, but you also want to keep the story moving. And so I love all this stuff, which is how I'm able to get through some of the drier stuff, but it's, it's, it's about having the enthusiasm for wanting to read about it and read about it and research it and be able to explain it simply, but also sort of paring that down and being like, okay, that's great. But like an average person is not going to read four paragraphs about this. Calm down a little bit. What do you, what's actually useful? I'm curious, how many drafts do you write? You're talking about, you know, you write this initial draft, you meet with your editors. How many drafts do you think you put together of a piece before it gets on the, the site or the magazine? probably between five and seven. So first, it's just going to be an outline in the loosest sense of the word. It's basically a list of words. Then it goes from a list of words to a list of ideas. Eventually, we'll get to sentences. And eventually, we'll get to paragraphs. So basically, I just take a page in Google Docs, just write loosely associated blurbs. That's sort of just getting it out, getting on a page. And then from there, I'm interested in structure. How can I take these ideas and arrange them in a way that is the most readable, that is focused on informing people. I think, you know, I have a lot of ideas about technology, about surveillance, about people, about how technology impacts people, but all that's useless unless I can explain the tech and what it does. So I always want to foreground what the tech is, what it does, you know? So what is the news? It's not just enough to say, oh, someone's doing this weird thing with cameras. It's how does this impact people? And then taking my thoughts and ideas, which I think are always amazing and perfect, and my editor humbles me, really multiple drafts but at the end of the day it's just about trusting your editor and overriding is something that i'm not comfortable with i used to be very precise and i made sure that the draft i turned in was you know to the word exactly what i wanted but overriding and carrying it down to the editor is a much better process yeah let's get to the other part you know it's because we've got the technology describing the technology but your other big part of your job that you've emphasized is you know how does this affect people especially you know people who may be left out of the technology who may experience um, negative impacts of the technology you know the cashless uh, restaurants and stores is a really good example how do you kind of identify that angle in your story you know who's impacted maybe who's left out how do you find those elements of the story i think the impact angle is difficult because the impact angle is the most important part of any new technology that's rolling out but the impact angle is usually pre-written so for example with the smart cooler piece they already had a very lengthy section about 
this is how great it is for stores and this is how great it'll be for Walgreens. This is how much more customers will enjoy it. The, the thinking is that you'll be able to tell what customers want in real time and you'll be able to stock it for them. So the impact angle is already pre-written by corporations, by big tech. So usually it's about just working from there. So if they say this will be great for the store and for customers, it's like, well, let's think about that. Let's, let's work with that. So really it's about, I would say being critical. Don't be cynical because that's useless and most cynical writing about technology is not useful. Another example I can think of is Facebook was actually sued by different civil rights groups because of the way that they were using ads. And so Facebook had an ad targeting platform where you could target people based on the things that they had liked. Um, but you could also exclude people based on the things that they liked. And so what ended up happening was if someone was putting up an ad about a new job or about a new house or apartments or, or they wanted to they wanted to say, hey, we have a, a real estate showing going, you could exclude people based on what they like. So if someone liked, for example, English as a second language, if someone liked BET, Black Entertainment Television, if somebody liked Telemundo, you know what I mean? You can make it see that they don't see your ads. And so what ends up happening, of course, is that Black and Hispanic people don't see the ads, which is a violation of the Civil Rights Act, which says that equal housing, equal opportunity employment, et cetera, et cetera. And so that was not a secret. Facebook was very happy to tell advertisers, hey, you can include and exclude people based on ads. That idea of who it was impacting was pre-written. It was impacting sellers and vendors who had a very clear idea of who they wanted to target and who they did not want to target. So again, it's just taking this idea of, hey, you can target whoever you want, and thinking, well, who gets left out of that? You know, who gets left out of that? And then why? You know, and is it is it a demographic? Is it a specific, is it a protected demographic? And so really, you have to do a lot of analysis, sort of working backwards. This is how I work. It's just working backwards from what the company says the impact is going to be or who they say it's going to benefit. Because often you'll find, I found that the interests of the, these companies and the interests of, you know, marginalized people, et cetera, et cetera, it can be, it can be at odds. So what you're saying is, you know, the company releases some press release about how great the technology is and sort of your process is. And I like your distinction between being critical and cynical, right? But your process is, okay, so who is not going to benefit from this or how might this affect especially marginalized communities in ways other than the way that the company is advertising that it's going to work. Absolutely. That, what I just described, the, the Facebook example is a type of uh, proxy advertisement where the the thing that you like is used as a proxy for your identity. And if I were to just rock up to someone and say, hey, I have, I have a story about proxy advertising and proxy discrimination, they'd be like, what were you talking about? But people already know what housing discrimination is, people know what civil rights are. And so that's why specifically there was such a clear parallel to something that already exists out in the world that people already understand, which made it much easier, much more readable to understand it. So, you know, I could go into like, this is how analytics works and this is how data processing works. And this is how you identify, you know, people's demographics based on data. You could do all that, but the best stories have that very clear, there, there's an overlay of all these different technological stuff, but it's a very clear, this is what impact is. And, and you, you already have an understanding or a parallel for, for what that is. I'm guessing that you do a lot more research than ends up in the story, typically. A lot more research ends up in the story, and usually what's left out is usually enough to sort of make another story or something to approach later. But yeah, lots and lots of research that doesn't go in the story. But also, like, I think that 
the reader can read discomfort. So if I'm describing something that I'm not fully aware of how it works, I'm not real, I'm so cutting quarters because I'm uncomfortable with how to describe it, I think the reader will pick up on that very quickly and so and and they'll go they'll go get it from somewhere else they'll read someone else yeah so that extra research gives you some confidence that comes across in the page even if the specific information that you researched isn't always there that's a great way of putting it like i I do think that the overdoing the research really is just about confidence on my part feeling like i i have a good grip on it at some point during the drafting process i can sort of tell when i'm like oh i know what this is i can handle it versus eh, I'm only about 50%. Let me read a few more things. And so that's where the thing about passion really comes in because like I just have to read a, a bunch of white papers, which are white papers are going to be very inside baseball, tradey, only inward facing. The, the thing that I was looking for, how it worked, it was in these white papers. So you ha- you're going to have to read a lot of dry things that are meant to be read by people in the industry, or you have to listen to a lot of videos where speakers are only talking to other people that are, you know, C-suite level execs within, within their industry. And so it's worth it for the confidence boost and better writing. But yeah, it, it's, it's dry. It's very, very dry. Well, there are members of my audience who will be thrilled that someone is reading white papers. <laughs> thank you out there. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, hey, thank you so much, Sydney. I really enjoyed talking to you. Thanks. I'm glad it went well.